Whenever you're on a plane now, one of the things they have on the screens that sit right in front of you is an option to see how your flight is progressing. And it's one of the things that I, I enjoy pulling up and watching. And, and when you pull it up, it'll have your city of origin and it'll have your final destination. And it'll have this little airplane representing your progress between the two and in a journey like that, it's important to know where you came from, where you're going, and where you are. And as important it is for you to know that, it's much more important for the pilot to know that. In our own spiritual lives, there are three things that we really need to understand in order to better understand how we are journeying in our spiritual life. To know the grace that has saved us, to know the glory that's coming, and to know the godliness in which we shouldn't be currently living. There are three pillars on which to build your life, the foundations on which all of Christianity is built. And without an understanding of these three powerful realities, uh, the Christian's lost, confused, and despondent. Without understanding a relationship of these three principles, uh, the, the Christian might have a compass but no map. They might be completely disoriented in terms of how to live their life in relation to God and to the world. Now, uh, let us look at Titus 2 and pay special attention to the three principles we've addressed. The grace, the glory, and godliness. Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Hear the word of the Lord. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word that you've given us. Lord, we pray that we might have receptive hearts and receptive minds, that we might have open ears to receive what you have for us in your word. Lord, we pray that the same Holy Spirit which inspired these words would be working in our hearts tonight to mold us, to break us, to remake us into a people that look more and more like your Son, Jesus Christ, to the praise and the glory of his name. We ask these things. Amen. Now, in this passage, uh, as I've said, we have these three powerful principles that are explained. And I think oftentimes we might uh, look at them in, in separate little categories. Uh, but tonight, I want to kind of look at each one and define them and then talk about the interrelated nature of the three. How do they react with one another? What's their cause and effect? What's the spiritual chemistry that happens between these three elements?
And I, I must admit, when I come to a passage like this, I feel a bit inadequate. You know, when you, when you come to a passage like this, there's somebody who I, I read once uh, recently, and he was saying that, you know, a good sermon is like somebody who is packing luggage. And they say somebody who can pack luggage well can fit a lot in, where somebody who's poor is going to have a lot, they're going to have less put in there, and it's going to be more of a mess. And with a passage like this, I just think there's not a suitcase big enough to contain all the glorious things that are in this package. Uh, so I feel a bit like I'm bungling a little bit just because the content of this passage is so rich. The theology is so deep. There's so much we can cover. And I feel like we'll just be skimming the purpose, the surface of these things. But as we look at Today's passage, let's first look at grace. That's what the passage begins with. Following the exhortations that we've been looking at in the past weeks in terms of right living in response to right doctrine, it says the reason why people are to live these lives, the reason why you do these radical things, such as slaves obeying their masters as unto the Lord, is because the grace of God has appeared. Now, grace is the first principle mentioned. Grace has appeared. That is, it's something which has already occurred in the past. Now, uh, we hear the word grace a lot in church, don't we? Uh, hopefully we do. Hopefully it's one of the things that's repeated over and over and emphasized over and over again. Um, but I was around somebody who was a new Christian recently, and it kind of reminded me that some of these words we use over and over again, that certain people don't know what they mean. So as I was talking and, and expounding grace to him, he said, now, wait a minute, what does, what does grace mean? And I said, well, grace is unmerited favor. He says, that's great. What does that mean? <laughs> I said, well, a simpler way to put it is it's a free gift. It's something that is unearned. It is an unearned good that is given to us. Now, we've, we've got to stop and explain free a little bit because we live in a, a culture and a society that uses the word free very loosely. You know, you, uh, you, you go to a store and it says, buy one, get one free. Now, that's not exactly free, is it? You've you got to pay a little to get, to get that free item. Okay, that, that's not the type of free. Then there's also, you know, the, the, you know I think of it, the cereal boxes, you know, and it says if you collect so many and you send in the box tops, you get a free gift or you get a free toy. You know, that, that's not exactly free either, is it? You've got to send something in. It's more of an exchange. They're just using the word free really loosely to lure you in. Uh, there's another thing. Uh, you, you would experience this in um, uh, cultures that are a little different than the states. You know, if you go to the Middle East, uh, we experienced it in the markets in, in Mexico. Uh, they'll, if you go into a shop there, they'll, they'll, they'll give you tea. Sometimes they'll give you even like a, a little item, a small item, and they'll give it to you for free. And, and the, the expectation and the hope and when they give you that little free item is what? That you buy something larger. 
In fact, I had one friend, they went into market, they got a free gift, and when as they were leaving without buying anything else, the merchant demanded the free gift back. Okay, it's not really free, is it? There's an expectation, there's an obligation. So in, in these type of things, they aren't free, they aren't gracious. There's an exchange, there's an obligation that's involved. A relative invites you to a free vacation, but you kind of know them. And you know the reason why they're inviting you is because the babysitter canceled last minute. And then you know that once you get out there and you're ready to go out onto the beach, they're going to say, now since we've given you this nice lavish vacation, do you mind watching the kids for a little bit? There's an obligation. There's an exchange. It might be labeled as free, but it's not truly Free. They demand a response to that gift. But with grace, you don't earn it. You don't pay for it. It's given to you not based on who you are or what you've done. It is solely based on the goodness, the greatness, and the generosity of the giver. Grace is an unearned good given to an undeserving recipient. Therefore, we see in, in the very nature of this word, we begin to understand that grace can't be bought, bribed, or coerced from God through our work or manipulation. Now, when I think about grace at, at this time of year, it's hard not to think about Christmas, isn't it? And in Christmas, our grace can manifest itself to other people, can it? In, in little or large gifts we buy, in, in expressions showing our affection and love to others. But all our, our gifts, all our grace, is tiny in comparison to the grace of God. The grace of God is awe-inspiringly powerful thing. And it has already appeared. The scripture says that. The grace of God has appeared. If you want to see God's grace manifest, you've got to look back. What do you look back to? You look back to Jesus, of course. You look back to his appearance. You look back to his incarnation. You look back to his life. You look back to his ministry. You look back to his suffering. You look back to his death on the cross. You look back to his resurrection. The grace of God has appeared in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. If you ever need a reminder of God's grace, if you ever need a reminder of his goodness, look back to Christ. That's what we sang about this morning, wasn't it? The grace that appeared. The miracle that occurs in God becoming flesh and Christ appearing for our benefit. Look back to Christ. That God the Father would send His Son to save many. That Christ would suffer. Why did God suffer? For our benefit, for our good. The good that God gives to us comes at a great and a precious cost. That sinners might experience the goodness of God 
rather than the wrath of God. Grace appears, and it appears in Jesus Christ. And when grace appears, it brings with it two abiding effects. The first one, the passage tells us, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And the second, it trains those who receive that grace. It says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Now, in our day and age, much is made about the salvation that accompanies grace. And rightly so. If you're going to make much of anything, make much of salvation. Emphasize it. Shout it from the rooftops. Declare it all Advent season. The prisoners have been set free. The lost have been found. The captives have been redeemed. The children of wrath have been adopted as heirs of God. And, that now, and it's talking about now the gates of salvation are open to all people, all nations. No longer do the nations have to come through the one nation, Israel. No longer do all people have to come through the one people, the Jews. But now both Jew and Gentile, both Israel and the nations, come to salvation through the grace that has appeared, through the one man, Jesus Christ. We should make much of salvation. But we shouldn't neglect the second aspect. And I fear that's what happens a lot in our churches. We talk about grace and the salvation it brings. Do we talk about the other aspect? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. But that's not the end of the story. It goes on and talks about godliness. Does it not? It, it talks about the godliness that comes with this grace. Now, I want to describe godliness in a certain way so we think of it rightly. Godliness is living under the authority of God while reflecting the character of God. Godliness is living under the authority of God while reflecting the character of God. Now, what does that mean? That means positionally we see certain things about God, don't we? That He is a king that He is a judge, that He is a Savior, that He is our Father. Now, it, it would be a mistake for us as His fallen creatures to try and take His place as King or to set ourselves up as judge. But in, a, in addition to having those positional attributes, He also has a, a character that He manifests Himself. He manifests himself as loving, as gracious, as kind, as patient, as holy, as good, and merciful. So in our godliness, we, we rightly order ourselves under his kingship, under his judgeship, under his saviorship, under his fathership. And then we begin to reflect his character to a lost and dying world. Loving showing His grace, His mercy, His kindness to those around us. 
We begin to take on the family characteristics that He has brought us into. One of the things we see is that grace brings godliness. One of the things I, I said, we're going to be talking about these kind of three points, three uh, compass marks that give us our trajectory, give us our direction. We look back to see grace. In the present, we're, our concern is godliness, which is an effect of grace. Grace is what allows us, grace is, is what empowers us to have godliness. But there's also something in the future that motivates and energizes our godliness. We see that glory energizes godliness. Do you notice that? Uh, the, the description of godliness is actually quite long. It says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That means that the godliness we're, we're talking about is uh, godliness in, in the negative sense, in that it sets aside those things which are uncharacteristic of God. Ungodliness, wickedness, evil. Um, part of our objective is to be purified by Christ. And that the godliness also has a positive effect. It's not just the removal of the evil, but it's also creating a positive good that is manifest in us. Not just abstaining from evil, but engaging in good. It says to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. By the way, notice the time change. For grace, we're looking back. But that grace that has occurred in the revelation of Jesus Christ has a present effect. What is its present effect? It is removing the sin that is within us and producing in us a new type of life characterized by godliness. Holiness is important. As we do this and as we live in light of that grace, we also have something in the future that we are drawing ourselves to that is energizing us. We're not just being pushed and propelled forward. We're also being drawn forward by what is going to occur in the future. It says, waiting for our blessed hope. What is hope? Hope is something you desire that's not yet made manifest. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's a glory that's coming. Now, we talk a little bit about glory. That's another one of those uh, church words that we, that we throw about, that we think about. But uh, I want you to think of glory. And, and glory is difficult to define. So I'm, I'm going to give you a definition, but it doesn't quite have the full sense, so I'm going to have to illustrate it as well. But glory is a reference to weight, to majesty, to majesty and to beauty. Uh, glory are, are, are the heavy things. Glory are the really real things. You know, I, I think of, by the way, if you've ever been to Israel, one of the things that's completely shocking is going to the Temple Mount 
And when you go to the Temple Mount, there are stones that are about as, as wide as this room and as high as this room and as deep as the first row to that back wall. And you look at those stones, which are ancient and have been there for years, and you think, how on earth did they move this? How on earth did, did this get here? And you think it's been set up for ages. And then you read in Isaiah where when the presence of the Lord manifests itself to Isaiah, it says the foundations of the temple trembled. You think about it, it's causing those stones to move? What can cause something that big to move? What can cause something that firm to tremble? It's because it came in contact with a reality greater than itself. The glory of the Lord God Almighty. He is the one reality that is so tr strong, so true, so firm, so real, that when it comes in contact with anything else, everything else trembles. When I think of glory, I think of uh, those things that you draw in contact with that makes you feel small and grateful at the same time. Okay, we have this sometimes when we encounter the glory of nature, don't we? When you're out in the dark of a moonless, clear night, and you begin to see the thousands upon thousands of stars, you, you see the, the Milky Way spreading across the sky, and, and you look at it, and, and you're filled with awe at His majesty, you kind of feel small and insignificant, too. You don't mind it that much, do you? Because you realize you're in the presence of, of something greater and more majestic than you can imagine. Or when you go to the mountains, you know, the glory of the stars is of one kind, the glory of the mountains is another, isn't it? When you see them and you, and you see their beauty, their strength, how they rise up out of the earth. Think about their deep foundations, and you come in contact of them, and you it takes your breath away. We went to uh, Yosemite, and we went up to a point above the Yosemite Valley called Great Glacier Point, and, and you get this panorama of the valley and all the mountains rising up. And you, as you come out kind of to the ledge and, and see all of it, it just sucks your breath out. You're like, <gasps> you just think it's so beautiful. It's so majestic. It's so glorious. You think, I, I'm kind of small and insignificant, but I don't mind it when I see something this beautiful. You know, these are little ways in which nature gives us glimpses of glory. I think of the music this morning, and I think this is giving us a little glimpse of glory. But these types of glory are nothing compared with the manifest glory of God. These things are, are, are just a shadow. They're a fleeting and faltering image. The glory of God is of a different kind and nature. He is far more majestic than any of the works of His hands. He is far more beautiful than anything He has created. There's coming a time, and we, we can't imagine it. We just get glimpses of it. The glory of God has not yet been revealed. The grace of God has. The glory is coming. The grace was revealed in the first coming of Christ. The glory of God is coming to be revealed in the second coming of Christ. That's what we're looking forward to. That's what we're anticipating. And we have, if we have a proper understanding that Christ is coming in glory, 
That His majesty is going to be revealed. That His holiness is going to be revealed. That His justice over the earth is going to be revealed. That He is going to judge all people. If we have a vision of that, that should change the way in which we live our lives in the present age. What you hope for changes the way you live. When I was hoping to get married, I started selling off certain possessions I owned. I sold a, a bike that was one of the only things I thought I could get any money for that I owned. Why was I selling all that stuff? I was trying to get a ring. Because I had a certain hope that when I presented that ring to a certain lady, she would have a certain answer. In hope and anticipation, I started to change the way I live. I started buying less expensive groceries. started eating oatmeal instead of cereal. I started selling off anything I had that it was worth anything. Why? Because I had a different hope. My hope wasn't for fancy cereal or to keep riding my bike. <laughs> It is for something different. It is for something greater. What you hope in determines how you live. If you're hoping for a good retirement, you start putting stuff away in savings. If you're hoping for uh, comfort or joy, you start living that way. If you're hoping for health, you might start going to the gym more often, start watching what you eat. What's your hope? Is it the appearance of the glory of God? If it is, that should radically transform the way in which you live in this life. Grace equips us for godliness. Glory energizes us for godliness. Because we know the purposes to which we are working, even though if our, in our strength they're futile, we know somebody's coming who's going to be able to establish His godliness, His rule, His peace, His glory over the world. If that's your hope, how is it manifest in your lives? We've mentioned before, what I find to be extremely convicting, which is if Christianity were deemed to be illegal, would there be enough evidence to convict you? What's the evidence that we have received the grace? Well, it's godliness. And, and this dynamic we've, we've got to understand properly. Grace brings, produces, and enables godliness. We see that in this passage, don't we? By the way, do you know that every other world religion works the other way? Every other major religion and world system says, um, our godliness brings and produces God's goodness and God's favor to us. Christianity says, no, 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 no. It's God's favor, it's God's goodness that allows us to be godly, that allows us to produce works. Christianity turns things on its head. People often ask, you know, well, you know, why are there so many different religions in the world? Really, there's just two. There's religions of works and religions of grace. There's a religion of works that say that what I do earns God's favor. Christianity says, no, God's favor is what empowers you to work for His good pleasure. Now, when you encounter that, like Paul does in, in Romans, the question comes up, then does godliness matter? 
By the way, if you look at the world, including the churches today, you might get the impression that godliness doesn't matter. It's not talked about. It's not focused upon. But the godliness, the holiness of the people of God is of utmost importance. And a right view is necessary. Now let's look at two wrong views. One, one wrong view, by the way, is legalism, which says, like the religions of this world, that we can earn grace. There, there's a very uh, popular book that's, that's good for people in, in business and relationship. And it's called uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. And essentially, one of the, the, the basis and the background of that book is that you're so sweet and so kind to people that they couldn't possibly tell you no. A very Southern way of thinking, by the way, isn't it? You know, if you're nice enough, kind enough, you know, you, you, you catch more flies with honey than vinegar. So if you're sweet enough, you're kind enough to people, and then you ask them for something, they'll kind of feel obligated to do Now, that is... Kind of good relational advice, kind of good business advice. You don't want to be a jerk or mean to anybody. But it's very dangerous religious advice. Because there are some people that get the impression, well, you know, if I'm just nice enough, if I'm just charming enough to God, if I just volunteer in all the right places, do all the right things, and then I ask for this little thing, God's kind of got to be obliged to meet my needs, doesn't he? a very dangerous and insidious thing to think that a holy God can be manipulated by people like us. By the way, that's a very dangerous God to worship because then you're not really serving a God, you're serving a puppet that you can pull the strings on. Legalism earns grace and can manipulate God through our works. And then there's an off opposite problem, an opposite error. You know, if we steal the analogy from bowling, uh, the devil doesn't care which gutter you land in, as long as you miss the point. An opposite view is that of licentiousness. And that is, well, you know, grace brought salvation, so who needs godliness? I got what I want out of the equation. I'm saved. What else matters? What benefit is there then to godliness in my life? By the way, both of these are transactional views of God. You notice that? One says, okay, I, I give God this so I can get what I want. The other one says, I got what I want out of God, so there's no need to obey Him. You see the transactional nature? God's just somebody I'm bartering with. God's just somebody I'm negotiating with. God's somebody I'm doing business with. It doesn't reveal the personal, relational aspect. Scripture describes God as a father, as a, as a husband, as a shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Would you use that, that type of negotiation in your marriage? All right, I got what my, I want, so I don't care about you. Or I'm, I'm going to do this so that you're obliged to do what I want you to. If you went to see a psychologist, they'd probably say, that's manipulation. No, godliness matters. Godliness matters, and, and we see in this, this is part of the purpose for which he has redeemed us.
Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. I don't think if we neglect godliness that we understand grace, that we understand salvation, that we understand the glory that's coming. Christ saved us from sin that we might become a new type of people. That we might become people who are dedicated to godliness. People who are zealous for this. People who are fanatics about this. We see that it's the purpose for which the grace of God has been manifest. That we might live godly lives in the present age. Saints, if we are a part of the Christian story, we must understand the grace that has appeared in the past. We must understand the glory that is coming in the second appearing of our Lord and Savior and we must understand the necessity of godliness in the present age. The way in which we live reflects the type of story we're living in. The way in which we live reflects the type of God we are serving. Are we serving a God of grace? Are we serving a God of glory? Are we manifesting the truth in the way in which we live our everyday lives? As I said, there's too much in this passage for me to pack it all in on one go. So as we progress, we're going to be looking at the more of the dynamics of what does God's grace do? What are we called to be? As we move forward, we're going to look at the zealous nature to which God is calling us to. That is, that this topic of godliness is not something that we're to be neutral of. It's not something we're to be disinterested parties in. He's calling us to a fanatical devotion to the purposes for which He's called us. But in order to live right in the present, we've got to look back to Christ. We've got to look forward to Christ. And as we've been hearing on Sunday mornings, we've got to abide in Christ. Christ is our all in all. This whole process is moved by Him and through Him. It's by His grace that we're able to attain godliness. And it's by His second coming that we will finally and fully achieve godliness. And it's only by dependence and communion in Him, by abiding in Him, that we will have any type, any measure of success and joy in the pursuit of godliness. Don't pursue godliness without the God who provides it. It is for His glory and for His honor that we have been saved to live godly lives. When you feel as though you're failing at that, look back to His grace. When you think you're achieving a measure of it, look forward to His glory and see how short you're falling. But always be encouraged to live a life for the glory of God. Hear now the benediction. Lord, may the grace that has saved us 
equip us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Lord, may we be patient and fruitful as we wait for the appearing of your glory in our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be all honor and praise, now and forever. Amen.